This is a download from News Talk 106 to 108. To download other programs or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. Was Shakespeare a Catholic or a Protestant? And how did his religious views, if any, shape the plots and characters of his comedies and tragedies? Hello, good morning, and you're very welcome to Talking Books with me, Susan Cahill. Well, this morning's show, we're going to take a little trip back to post-Reformation England, to the enchanting and exhilarating world of William Shakespeare. Yes, we're going to catch up with some iconic and memorable players. Romantic Romeo, indecisive overthinking Hamlet and the brutally ambitious Lady Macbeth. And see what these classic personality types and storylines reveal about the inner thoughts and deepest concerns of the writer himself. Leading Shakespearean scholar and author Professor David Scott Canston discusses his new book, A Will to Believe, and the importance of religion to Shakespeare's dramatistic imagination. He thinks in terms of social roles. He thinks in terms of lines of power. He's around the court. He sees how courts work. He understands about favoritism. He understands about power. And this is always the miracle. You know, he's our greatest writer about human emotions, but he's probably also our greatest writer about the fallen world of politics, better than Machiavelli at doing Machiavellianism. He's astonishing this way, and I think what he is, he's the greatest listener. I mean, I think what Shakespeare does, he himself is so sensitive to what's happening around him, sensitive to what even changes in the way the language works, what that indicates. He's not ivory tower intellectual, you know, thinking that somehow he's above the fray. For him, the fray is is exactly where every writer needs to be and the fray is where you know people are most wonderfully and horribly human and that's what the plays are about and one of Scandinavia's most successful script writing teams Scylla and Rolf Borgling discuss their engrossing new crime thriller Springtide and the disturbing harsh and bitterly divided social realities that their narratives present but first on the 19th of December 1601 John Croke, then Speaker of the House of Commons, addressed his colleagues. If a question should be asked, what is the first and chief thing in a Commonwealth to be regarded? I should say religion. If what is the second, I should say religion. If what is the third, I should say religion. But if religion was recognised as the chief thing of the Commonwealth, we've been less certain what it does in Shakespeare's place. Written and performed in a culture in which religion indeed was inescapable, the plays have usually been seen either as evidence of Shakespeare's own disinterested secularism or more recently as coded signposts to his own sectarian commitments. Without doubt, every age creates its own Shakespeare. And while Shakespeare studies have always been interested in religious dimensions of Shakespeare's historical context and how that was explored in the plays, a new interest in the dramatist's personal religious beliefs is growing in momentum fueled in some part by Catholic revisionism and claims that the Reformation never really took hold amongst the people in England. Our Shakespeare today seems to be a religious Shakespeare 
and for some quite a militantly Roman Catholic one who was involved in underground movements led by night-like Jesuit priests who were struggling against a persecuting Protestant queen and who desperately wanted to restore loyalty to the papacy. It's certainly an interesting hypothesis, but can it be proved? What can we really know or not know? And importantly, does it matter? or affect our reading and enjoyment of these great plays. David Scott Canston is a George M. Bowdman Professor of English at Yale University. He's an internationally recognised expert on the life and literature of William Shakespeare and has written several critically acclaimed books on England's most celebrated dramatist, including Shakespeare and the Shapes of Time, Shakespeare After Theory and Shakespeare and the Book. His latest offering, A Will to Believe, Shakespeare and Religion offers a provocative, intriguing and hugely entertaining guide into how religion charged the world in which Shakespeare lived and operated in. This book robustly shows what we know and can't know about Shakespeare's religious beliefs and skillfully demonstrates how the often fraught and paranoid religious environment of post-Reformation England gets refracted by the lens of Shakespeare's imagination. It's a terrific read gloriously absorbing, accessible, funny, astute and a real change of scene. I think anyone who's interested in the life of William Shakespeare, a bit of power politics, some romancing and a dash of quality human psychology will absolutely adore this book. When I caught up with David, I asked him, why should we care if Shakespeare was a Catholic or a Protestant? Why worry and why now? problem is that we can't help but worry about it. I don't, in one way, the argument of the book is we probably shouldn't care, but we have so much invested in our Shakespeare. The Germans have a phrase, unser Shakespeare. You know, they, for everyone, Shakespeare is our Shakespeare, whoever you are. And he comes to, to stand as the sort of guarantor of our best selves. So somehow we want to know who this person was. And the difficulty is we can't know very much, and that frustrates us. So we, we project, we guess, we make up. And I think the ongoing discussion about Shakespeare and religion is a function of how much we care about Shakespeare and increasingly a function of how we recognize the Enlightenment promise that religion would somehow go away uh, hasn't been fulfilled, and so we come back to Shakespeare to you know, to find in our most precious writer these most precious thoughts, though it does seem to me at some level wrong-headed, which is really what the book argues. Without doubt, religion charged the atmosphere and the world that Shakespeare was working in. But what can we actually say about Shakespeare's religion itself or a sense of spirituality? The perfect question is actually the question that both inspired and uh, inhibited the book from getting done. On one hand, it's it's almost impossible to recover that aspect of the past, and certainly to recover that aspect of the past from you know anyone's interior sensibility, because all that survives are external traces. And even if Shakespeare said something definitive at some moment, which he actually doesn't, almost everything he said is deflected through poems and plays. But even if he had, all that would mean was at the moment he spoke it, he said it thinking something, but we have no idea whether he was telling the truth, protecting himself, having someone on. You know, so you can't judge tone very well across hundreds of years of, of distance or motivation. And what we have are these fabulous plays and poems. 
And I guess my sense has been that what is there in those plays and poems is evidence of his deep awareness of how the culture is saturated with religious thoughts, religious language. I mean, it's the normal language in which people express value uh, and relatedness, you know, even at the most trivial level, just, you know, our term of farewell, goodbye, that actually is a sort of modernization of God be with you. You know, it always was part of that language which he registers, which he focuses on. You find characters endlessly defining themselves in religious terms. It doesn't tell you very much about what Shakespeare believes, but it tells you something essential about how he understood how central and inescapable religion was, religious language was, religious ideals were, and of course in his own time, the fraught religious politics. So it would be ridiculous to ignore the religious dimension of his place. But also, would it be fair to say that in some way his religion, whatever it was, contributed to Shakespeare being one of the greatest writers on earth? I think it seems to me it's impossible, not just important, I think it's impossible to ignore the religious dimension of his plays. So it's interesting that at various times in the later history of Shakespeare reading and performing, people thought, that was the mark of his excellence. I mean, what, what is interesting, in the 19th century, you do find writers singling out Shakespeare as the person who's able to break free from what they see as a sort of manacles of religious thought. And, I mean, it's a kind of projection of their own sense of what it means to be a writer and an intellectual in the world. Wonderful sentences. While the rest of the world lurches between Geneva and Rome, Shakespeare sets out on the wide seas of humanity, somebody wrote in the Edinburgh Review. And so they wanted a secular Shakespeare. But I think one of the things that we see very clearly, in part, it's our own inheritance where we've come to understand that modernity hasn't severed these links with religion, that they still are so powerful in our world, in our lives. We see how much Shakespeare is part of a culture where, where religion provides the fundamental terms, not just of value, but, but also of relatedness. It, it's individuals to God, but it's individuals to their families, individuals to their lovers. I mean, this provides the context, the bonds of human social life. And to pretend it's not important or to pretend it's just simply an accidental sort of anachronistic effect is to miss something really fundamental about Shakespeare. So, David, before we actually go into A Will to Believe and a bit more about your book, Shakespeare and Religion, can we look at the historical evidence to suggest that we had a Catholic Shakespeare? It's a very interesting question. Obviously, for the last 15 or 20 years, it's been in some ways, perhaps the most urgent question that Shakespeare scholars have considered. And here's another thing I wanted to talk about in the book, was it seems to me there's an awful lot of, of special pleading in all of the cases that people have made to claim Shakespeare as a fellow traveler in, in any particular faith. I, my own sense is, looking at the records pretty carefully, that there's actually no way to know whether he was a Catholic or not. Almost certainly his father and his mother were brought up as Catholics, as everybody would have been in their generation. And it seems to me, though, what you have are these riddling records, very little written 
in Shakespeare's own voice. I mean, there isn't a diary, there aren't letters, the few documents that exist outside of the plays are all sort of business records. One really doesn't have a sense of, you know, the, the man inside. And it's a culture, of course, where the very terms of the Elizabethan settlement were a line that Francis Bacon wrote, we do not make windows into men's souls. And they sort of recognize the difficulty of understanding, you know, what someone really believed But it was a culture where Church of England was required. It actually was criminal not to go. And so what we have are some records that are intriguing. Shakespeare's father gets fined for not going to church. Is that evidence that he was a Catholic and didn't go because he was protesting? Well, perhaps. But in the actual visitation record, Shakespeare's father is listed among those men who doesn't go to church because of debt. He didn't didn't want to run into the people he owed money to. Now, maybe that just was the excuse he used when he was asked, but this becomes the problem. Whatever whatever evidence you have, it's simply uh, neutral until someone interprets it, and then you, you don't have access to anything that's compelling. So my sense is you know, what we know about Shakespeare is he lived in London, he stayed out of trouble, he's never fined for recusancy, he works for the King's Men, a pretty visible company, his children are baptized as Church of England children, and that's the logic of what happens, and he's buried in the Trinity Church. So there doesn't seem to me any compelling evidence of what his faith is. I mean, you have this will he leaves, but it is, in fact, very conventional. The language of it is conventional language of Protestant faith, but it really is derived from a essentially a handbook of how to make wills that was put together by a lawyer named William West, sort of the dummy's guide to will-making. And so, you know, one can't even take the language of that will as being evidence of what Shakespeare himself thought. And I think all you have are these plays where you can see not so much what Shakespeare thought, but the raw materials that allowed his thinking. And you you just watch him play with that. He certainly lived in a world where one would be aware of the sharp confessional differences that existed not only between Protestants and Catholics, but between various kinds of Protestants, which you know, always threatened to fracture in some way. One of my favorite 17th century words is a polemicist who writes a piece about what's happened to the Protestant faith in, in England, and he protests what he calls the Amsterdamnification of London, just as it starts to fracture out into various kind of what he would have called sectaries, sects of of Protestants. This is the world he lives in. It's powerful. It's vital. What people believe matter. And he knows that. But what he believes still seems to me utterly invisible. And what we see is a great Catholic imagination in his plays. Like his dramatic vision could be argued is intensely Catholic in terms of symbolism and themes. I think much of it is, but on the other hand, there's a way in which, you know, if you write a play about Richard II or Richard III, the country is Catholic. You can't can't escape it. You have bishops, you have priests. If you use Italian settings, you have a Catholic Italy. And yet it's true. I mean, in the the sense that there is a way in which one can find, your phrase is a good one, a a kind of Catholic imagination, though I think I see it with a small C rather than a large C. I I think it makes Shakespeare Shakespeare is a capaciousness about what he can recognize, what he can respect, what he can care about. And he certainly understands that many of his countrymen, maybe much of his family was Catholic, and that this is sort of part of a world he knows, he understands as a boy, 
he would have grown up in it. I mean, a world where England did lurch back and forth as with changes of rulers uh, into changes of religion, and some families, of course, didn't change at all. So this is part of the world, and there were risks to this, and this idea that one has secret religions. He certainly knew about it outside of Stratford. There were Catholic families that were involved in what sort of became the gunpowder plot. So he certainly knew people who were Catholic. I do think he just the habit of mind is not, it's not exclusive. It's a kind of wonderfully inclusive habit of mind that tries very hard to find sort of common grounds of humanity. You know, I, I and mean, that's why I say it's Catholic for me with a, a small c, and yet fully aware of how Catholic the world was. I mean, that Elizabethan England was not Protestant England. It was not coextensive with that. There, still was, there was a large Catholic community. There were people who, you know, mostly aristocrats who were sort of more overtly Catholic families worshiping. But there certainly was a large Catholic community that felt oppressed, went underground in some ways. And he knew it. I mean, that was certainly clear. And there are people who were starting to write in the late 16th and early 17th century who sort of recognized the kind of multiplicity of religions in the world, though inevitably they always decide that Christianity and maybe even Protestantism is the one true one. But there's a, you know, there is this capacious sense of belief matters in the world, but specifying that belief is much more complicated. That seems to be, for Shakespeare, affected by other concerns, family, regional, local, accidental circumstances that determine it. So, I mean, I still would resist, you know, seeing a Catholic Shakespeare, but I find a, a Shakespeare who is enormously sympathetic to many aspects of Catholicism, not least of which is a kind of coherence in the world that the religious wars started to fracture in some way. And how do you explain his vision in maybe plays like Romeo and Juliet or Much to Do About Nothing or Hamlet? Because it strikes me that you could read them with a very tight Catholic lens. Hamlet's more difficult. I mean, I think Romeo and Juliet and Much Ado are intriguing but again, you'd say that they are, after all, set in Italy. <laughs> he doesn't have, you know, so it may just be a reality effect as much as it's a commitment. Though, of course, he didn't have to set it in Italy. He could have, could have moved them. But sometimes I would say an Italian is just an Italian, not necessarily a Catholic. But they are set, though you would say, if I guess I wanted to argue aggressively against that, which I don't, but I might say, well, Friar Lawrence and Romeo and Juliet actually is a large part of the reason things go wrong, that in fact, if he were a better Catholic, that play might have had a better ending. You know, he doesn't urge the young lovers to go to confession. He comes up with this plan, which even he ultimately says, confusions, cures, like lies not in these confusions. I mean, he's kind of a, a bad priest in his commitment to the two lovers rather than to the terms of the church. And Much Ado is also an interestingly complicated play. I mean, I, I think it's interesting how much for Shakespeare, you know, faith gets moved into a series of kind of secular analogs. Uh, you know, believing in one another becomes the, the test rather than a set of confessional or doctrinal commitments. And Hamlet seems to me the really interesting case. The last chapter of the book is all about Hamlet. And in some way, it's about the theological incoherence of that play. And yet it's still such a moving, powerful, irresistible play precisely because of that. that the world doesn't yield confessional answers. You know, Hamlet goes to university at Wittenberg, Luther's university. He sort of begins as dealing with the ghost in all of the ways a good Luther student might 
But, of course, the ghost turns out to be the one thing everybody at Wittenberg would have assured him couldn't be the case, the purgatorial spirit of his father. And yet you never know for sure what this ghost is. You know, that's the one thing you can't tell. And Hamlet, in some extraordinary way, I mean, one of my favorite lines of the play is, in the to be or not to be speech, astonishing line that nobody ever really focuses on. He says, well, I don't really know enough about what it means not to be because death is that undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns. And you'd say, oh, well, okay, but you just spent two and a half acts of this play talking to a ghost and thinking about a ghost. So why suddenly do you assume that death is this born from whence no traveler returns? And I think it's just the play is built out of a whole set of religious thoughts, but it's not committed to a religious position. It's just this recognition of how our relationships to the past and to the future are sort of inevitably structured out of religious thinking. But nowhere does it seem to me anyway that you know, Shakespeare's making a, a religious commitment of his own. And what about Macbeth? Macbeth is such a spectacular play in so many ways. I mean, in one way, you have that moment in Macbeth where he can't kill Duncan, you know, this oddity. I always think the thing about Lady Macbeth makes it so interesting because they make one good murderer between them. You know, in some ways, they're, they're, they're Shakespeare's best married couple because they try to do something together. Unfortunately, they probably could have found a better family business than, than murder. But sense of what he says after she fails to kill Duncan, and then he goes back, and but then he says, I, I, I could not say amen, you know. that. So against the language with one expresses not necessarily even explicitly religious feelings, but where so the language of emotion, the language of value, as well as the language of faith, is always shaped by the available religious language that he uses and deploys so brilliantly. But Macbeth seems to me not very much a religious play, at least in any sense we might we might think of it. I mean, there's the oddity of the rhythms of that play. I mean, you could say famous vision of Macbeth, you know, kind of just this moment, this parentheses, this you know, awful, murderous parentheses and some rhythm of eternity. But that's not exactly how the play works. There's something you know, odd kinds of doubling, sort of uncanny repetitions. So at the very end, you know, Malcolm is hailed as king three times, just as Macbeth is. And you wonder, is this the world now somehow come right? Or is it just sort of one more murderous moment? I mean, what do you make of it? You just don't get a sense in that world that somehow God's benign presence is going to redeem what's happened. It's just not at all clear what happens next because of this kind of uncanny replication of the beginning. Once again, Thane of Carter is killed, who where nothing in his life you know, so so impressive as his leaving of it as a Malcolm hailed three times as king and goes off to scone to be to be crowned. It's not a religious image. It's it's that kind of potentially murderous image of repetition that is kind of not religious at all. Augustine says somewhere the wicked walk in circles, and this and it's kind of circling around seems to partly empty out that play of some kinds of religious possibility. Just darker than that. I mean, and, and I think. Partly for Shakespeare, it's generic. You know, Christianity and tragedy uncomfortably inhabit the same spaces. And I think for Shakespeare, the various genres in which he works, it's not that any one of them is true, but they're sort of provisional 
explorations of what is the world like if. And in tragedy, the if is, you know, if there isn't compensation and consolation for our life of suffering. And think about the ending of Lear, that endless vocabulary of redemption, even that image of Cordelia dead in Lear's arms, this kind of grim, horrific pieta, but it doesn't redeem anything. There's another hope that gets dashed. And it's not that that's true for Shakespeare, but in the tragic world, it's true. It's the nature of tragedy. Tragedy is the form for Shakespeare that refuses compensation and consolation. Those powerful Christian terms that make Christianity meaningful almost have to be hinted at, but then withdrawn from the tragic world. And do you think it's these Christian messages that we get, whether some are a little bit more layered or ambiguous than others? Do you think that's what makes Shakespeare so accessible and so universal and so utterly enduring? And I think for Shakespeare, the various genres in which he works, it's not that any one of them is true, but they're sort of provisional explorations of what is the world like if. And in tragedy, the if is... You know, if there isn't compensation and consolation for our life of suffering, I think about the ending of Lear, that endless vocabulary of redemption, even that image of Cordelia dead in Lear's arms, this kind of grim, horrific pieta, but it doesn't redeem anything. There's another hope that gets dashed. And it's not that that's true for Shakespeare, but in the tragic world, it's true. It's the nature of tragedy. Tragedy is the form for Shakespeare that refuses compensation and consolation. Those powerful Christian terms that make Christianity meaningful almost have to be hinted at, but then withdrawn from the tragic world. And David, do you think that Shakespeare will be amused today, that most people will turn to the plays of Shakespeare, where they've learned their great humility, where they've learned grace? Or they'll certainly turn to Shakespeare maybe for the answers rather than to the Bible. I suspect it would have delighted him in one way and then frustrated him in a very practical way, which was the conditions of authorship that were shaped by copyright laws that existed then. He became a reasonably wealthy man, but not because of what he wrote. The money he made all came because he was a part owner in the theater and that the copyrights to the plays that he published and the poems all belonged to the publisher. So it would have amused him, but it would have been a a wry, slightly bitter form of amusement, saying, "Uh, if only I lived in an age with a more enlightened copyright law, it would have all been better. But David, it strikes me that, you know, Shakespeare was quite a political operator, hugely clever, very smart and very savvy. So despite the restrictions he was faced with, he certainly was able to get the best of what he could get in terms of his messages or his morality out there. Oh, absolutely. I know he's a... remarkably savvy and subtle. I think, you know, he's in some ways you can see the way it was shaped out of his life, leaving the small market town of Stratford, moving to London, spending time with actors. He's a person who professionally, both as an actor and as a writer, creates roles. I mean, that's literally what he does. And it seems to me the great genius of Shakespeare is, you know, not just as a dramatist, but a kind of dramatistic imagination. He understands, he thinks in terms of social roles. He thinks in terms of lines of power. His acting companies themselves were so intricately implicated in the life of politics because there was a law passed, I think, 
first in, in the 1570s, which said acting companies needed to have the supervision of some aristocrat to be allowed to act professionally. So first he's involved probably with Earl Pembroke's men, and then he's in the Lord Chamberlain's men. Then when James comes to the throne in 1603, the company becomes the king's men. He's around the court. He sees how courts work. He understands about favoritism. He understands about power. And this is always the miracle. You know, he's our greatest writer about human emotions, but he's probably also our greatest writer about the fallen world of politics better than Machiavelli at doing Machiavellianism. He's astonishing this way, and I think what he is, he's the greatest listener. I mean, I think what Shakespeare does, he himself is so sensitive to what's happening around him, sensitive to what even changes in the way the language works, what that indicates. And I do think there's an enormous, your word I think was canny or savvy, and I think that's right. I mean, he's not ivory tower intellectual, you know, thinking that somehow he's above the fray. For him, the fray is exactly where every writer needs to be and the fray is where you know people are most wonderfully and horribly human and that's what the plays are about and that was david scott canston talking to me about his new book a will to believe the book is published by oxford university press and retails close to 30 euros i really recommend it coming up next we're going to move into an entirely different world into the harsh brutal landscapes of scandic crime fiction Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. And you're very welcome back to Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Susan Cahill. If you'd like to get in contact with the show, well, why don't you send me an email at talkingbooks at newstalk.ie? Or if you've missed any of our programmes over the last couple of weeks, well, don't worry, they're all up as podcasts on our programme webpage. All you need to do is visit www.newstalk.ie forward slash talking books and download a couple of shows. I think there's a decent variety up there at the moment, so I hope something for everyone, no matter what your taste. Now on to something very different, to the dark, shady, violent streets of Sweden. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to have breakfast, lunch and dinner and lots more besides with your business or creative partner? And how does an intimate relationship affect the way you collaborate? and perform your work. Well, my next guests, Scylla and Rolf Borgling, are no strangers to the crime-writing world. Their television credits include, among many others, 26 Martin Beck films, the Swedish adaption of Wallander, and most recently, the TV series Arnie Dahl. Their latest collaboration, Spring Tide, is their first step into writing crime fiction in novel form. Now, what's interesting about this partnership is Scylla and Rolf have been living together for 24 years. Springtide is a fresh and exciting and certainly cinematic book that launches the book writing career of these already very talented scriptwriters. If you like to read complicated plots with layers of social commentary and plenty grit, well then Springtide is the book for you. Last week, I gave Scylla and Ruff a call at their home in Stockholm and we chatted about their unique partnership. Let's take a listen. They're quite a duo. When we are in the final writing process like we are now with our third book, it's uh, almost 24-hour work 
and we work evenings, we work weekends, we speak about the working process at the dinners. It gets very intensive. And for you, Scylla, how intense does it get for you? It's getting quite <laughs> intense, as uh, Rolf said, in period. Because since we live together, we uh, work together almost 24 hours a day or night. And we uh, work in the same house as we live in. And do you ever come to blows on your idea of where the story will go? Because you have your characters and you've got your plot. Although you live together and have had a relationship for so many years, that maybe you see it differently or you feel them differently or you imagine them somewhat differently. Do you ever find yourself seeing it in different ways? No, very seldom, actually. Because we work together with the characters and the plot before we actually start writing. So we are thinking the same way, you can say. And we, we have been working for almost 20 years. So we have, have the same thoughts about what we do. I think. And you have had a very successful career writing for film and for TV. We have been writing together for almost 20 years, but Rolf has been writing as a scriptwriter from the late 70s. And we started to write together in the early 90s and have been writing 26 films about Martin Beck, the Cheval Vale characters. And we have also been doing other crime, own crime stories for TV and for film. There are some differences, but there are also many similarities. Both forms demand the same kind of work when it comes to create characters in a story. We uh, work the same way as we do when we write scripts as when we write Tide. The difference, I think, is lies within the media itself. In a book, you have to describe persons and environments and clothes and feelings and so on in detail. You don't have to do that when on screen in, in a script because you have actors and directors and set designers doing that job and interpret the, the things you write. And the script is mainly dialogue and short descriptions to the actors and the directors. As a scriptwriter, you're one link in the chain of persons working with the final result. As a writer of a book, it's more what you write that the reader gets, and that's no one else's interpretation of what you have written. The big difference, perhaps, is within the language. A book demands a special voice and a more literary tone than a script does. So, Rolf, did you find that very rewarding, having complete ownership of your idea? I like to play God, and writing a book is, uh, is in a way, uh, playing God. And that's what we really long for after having been writing a script for so long, because writing a script is just the first phase in, in, in a very long process where a lot of people is going into your work and cutting it and changing it. And in the final end, the result is uh, uh, rather seldom what you originally wrote. So at one point a couple of years ago, we decided now we would like to write something where we decide everything ourselves about the characters and what they are going to say and about the story and everything. So that, like Silla said, what we write would really be what the reader reads. No one else would put their fingers in our jam pot. And Scandic crime has a reputation for being quite gritty and quite dark. Well, I know. <laughs> I know. We just participated in an anthology called A Darker Shade of Sweden. Uh, I know. And it, of course, comes from maybe from Sjöval Wahlö and maybe from Henning Mankel. Of course, also from Stieg Larsson and other writers like Arne Dahl and so on. Actually, I don't know if I would say that Swedish crime writing is darker than any other crime writing 
I can't really say that. But we try to uh, pick up problems that are very actual and problems that, of course, are wrong in our society. And uh, maybe sometimes it comes to a collision with people's general idea of what Sweden is or what Sweden are supposed to be. And, and we show that there are some other sides in our society, sides that, that there is in every society, I think. But there's a rough honesty that you get in Scandic crime fiction in terms of social challenges in that landscape. Is it that maybe that's what Scandinavian audiences demand? I can answer that really. I can just uh, answer for our writing. And, and I don't think our books look quite the same as other Swedish crime writers' books do. But uh, of course, every, every well, we have a lot of crime writers in Sweden who are working with some lighter material like you have in in, in, the, in Ireland or in UK or whatever. But for myself and for my wife, for us, it's always been very important to take up some serious social problems. That's the, the main reason for writing a crime story for us. It's not only the entertainment, but because it gives you possibility to uh, say something about the time you are living in, in a way that you can't say in other forms. And Scylla, in terms of the representation of female characters in your book and what you set out to achieve by the female character. Okay, we have Olivia Renning, who is a young, young girl studying at the police academy. She's she's about 23. She is very ambitious. She uh, studies to be a police officer and she's sometimes too eager for her own best I think and we have another woman who is detective superintendent Mette Ulsäter and she is around 60 and she is very talented and she's very smart and she's actually the the one our main characters she's working as a, a police officer she's the only one the other female characters we have, I don't know if I want to tell everything about them because one of them, I think I will reveal something that I don't want to. And Silla, I'm wondering, how important is it for you as a writer to maybe introduce romantic storylines in amongst the intensity of a very strong crime thriller? In Springtide, we have some romantic, if you want to put it that way. But it's not the main thing, I think, in the first book. We have other in the second book, much more of that. But we try to, not just with romance or or lighter things, we try to put in much humor in the books and uh, use humor to lighten up, if you want to say that way, the dark side of our subjects and, and so on. And Rolf, you're dealing with very dark subjects, very challenging issues. What do you think is the responsibility or role of a crime writer? Well, I can only answer for myself and my wife. And as I said before, I think it's a responsibility we take on when we write a book. The responsibility that you have as an artist to say something about the society you are living in and to uh, maybe discover things and tell about them that haven't been told in that way or haven't been seen in that way that you could describe them. Of course, you shouldn't entertain. Of course, you uh, have to have a literary level where it gets interesting. But in the bottom, for us, we have to tell about some serious subject. Our first book is about the multinational company who is exploiting the third word, for example, a Swedish company. 
and about homeless people and about young kids in the suburb who uh, get criminals. And our second book uh, is about the welfare, how we are selling out our welfare in Sweden, I guess you are doing over there too, maybe. Sharks with big money is coming into the schools and uh, elder uh, houses and hospitals and buying up them and making them private. So we are dealing with that problem in our second book. And then the third book we are writing now is, of course, about racism. And Rolf, does it worry you that some people can get turned on in some perverse way with the details laid out in crime novels? Like some crime novels are very upfront and very violent and very sexually graphic, while there's others more concentrate on the characters around the crime and the psychology of the characters. Well, I personally think that's very uninteresting. We have been writing so much crime series for television and we always have been very careful about uh, those things. But directors often want to do a lot more detailed versions than we are writing it in the script. So when we are starting to write the books, that was one of the things that we knew that we would, we are much more interested in the psychology between the characters and the relations and things like that. I think myself going into detail on a bloody murder is very uninteresting. And if you do it too detailed and too extreme, you really block the reader and you don't get anything out of it. I mean, there are some writers that you could really feel that they are just writing it for the, for the fun of writing it because they can write it, but it don't actually have any literary level or something like that. And it's more for titillation and being sensationalist and to attract yes, media I coverage. So. I think so. And I think that's uninteresting. But the joy of books is the places that they take you and the social and emotional engagement between the characters or personalities. So there's so much more company and friendship in a book when you're getting inside the minds and the characters. It's much more of a rewarding experience. Yes, I agree totally. Just finally, Sila, I'm wondering, does your daughter read your books and what does she make of them? Yes, she has, actually. And she read it when it came out, I think. And she liked it very much, actually. And she's not reading that much. So it was a victory to us when she read it. Would she be, as possibly you would be, very critical of TV dramas? Because I imagine when you're watching and you're looking and you do it for a living also, you must get very frustrated, do you? Yes. Actually, and right now, when we are writing, it's very hard to... to uh, actually, we, we, we watched Sherlock yesterday, <laughs> but we don't look that much on crime when we write because it's uh, distracting us, I think. It's the same if you can't read another book when you're writing because it distracts you too much. But yesterday, we, we watched Sherlock Holmes. It's very clever done. And actually, also, the the killing, the Danish series. That's a very, very good writing. We liked it very, very much. And your writing has been compared to some of the greats in crime fiction. If you were to recommend to Irish audiences some other very interesting and engaging Scandic writers, who would they be? Well, we both like Johan Thurin. He's writing about an island, uh, Erland in Sweden, a big island. We have been, uh, we wrote the scripts for the Arnadal books as well. I think I like him. And another one who I know is published is um, Karin Gerardsen and also Karin Alvklegen.
And that very moving sacred music you heard there was from Estonian composer Arvo Port. I think his compositions evoke great spirit, magic and humanity. They're really quite special. So I thought it worked well with the two books we've discussed this morning. Well, that's it for Talking Books for another week. I hope you enjoyed the show. Next week, I'm going all predictably Irish on you and celebrating the best of Irish memoirs, narratives and history. So all that's left for me to do now is to say a big thank you to Owen Holligan, who helped out in research, and the lovely Alan Regan on sound. We've been talking books. Why don't you pull the curtains back, open the windows, pull on the coffee and bring a bit of light, imagination and Shakespearean action into your world this morning. You know, you might surprise yourself and learn something new about yourself too. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. For listening to this News Talk 106 to 108 podcast. To download other programs or for more information, go to newstalk.ie.